Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, I too um, pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We gather today as your people. We come from different homes, different circumstances, different challenges, different distractions. But we gather as one. We gather in the name and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the power of your spirit. And I pray that we even consciously gather in that way with joy, with enthusiasm, with a great sense of the privilege and the preciousness of being a part of your everlasting household. We are sharers in that which the prophets and the sons of Israel saw dimly as through a fog at a distance. We are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are partakers in what all those who went before could only long for with a sense of un unclear longing and yet their hearts were faithful I pray it is so with us and Father whatever are the things that have filled our week have filled our hearts and our minds whatever things would make us be not of one heart and one mind as we gather I pray that by your spirit you would Set those things aside, that you would gather us up in the mind of Christ to be nourished, to be encouraged, to be all the more truly and and tightly knit together as those in whom the glory of Christ is being perfected. And help us to be faithful stewards of that great trust in all things, at all times. Fill our hearts with joy. Meet us now, teach us, instruct us. Make fruitful this time together. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, after two weeks away, we return to our study in the Psalms. And just very quickly to remind you, uh, as, as I've kind of tried to put an umbrella over the Psalms, which are very diverse in a lot of ways, uh, I've titled this series, The Songs of Sonship. These Psalms were composed as songs to be sung 
as central to Israel's life and Israel's worship. And they were grounded in the fact of Israel's election as son of God. The Israelites as sons and daughters, collectively the son of God for the sake of the world. And that premise lies behind all of the Psalms, whatever their concern, whatever uh, their specific orientation. And so recognizing these Psalms then as songs of sonship, they deal with all of the aspects of that sonship. And I started with what I think is fundamental, which are the Psalms that celebrate the various dimensions of sonship. That, that, that are psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms that celebrate Israel's status, Israel's privilege as sons and daughters of God. And I wanted to finish off that section this morning. Last time we considered this idea of, of intimacy with God at the very center of this sonship. The Psalms very much are centered in the blessedness, the privilege, the goodness of intimacy with God. But another corollary of that is that the sons of God who stand in this relationship of intimacy with him also share a unique relationship with one another. And so in this first part of our study where we've been considering Psalms that celebrate the concept of sonship, uh, I want to conclude that section today by considering this aspect of sonship that is brotherhood. Brotherhood, the fellowship that exists amongst the children of God. Again, Israel alone among all of the people of the earth enjoyed that status. Not because they were better, not because they were greater, but because of God's purpose. God chose the people of Israel in Abraham. You alone of all the families of the earth, God said, have I chosen. And he chose them not just specifically for them, but he chose them as his instrument on behalf of his purposes for the world. And so Israel's unique and privileged sonship was not intended by God to be a source of their setting themselves apart or exalting themselves over above the nations, not retracting themselves from any kind of contact with the world, and certainly not setting themselves above the rest of the world. But in fact, Israel's unique distinction was for the sake of the world. God's intent was that in Israel, as his elect son, he would gather to himself sons and daughters from all the earth. We know that from the Abrahamic covenant and its commission. The ultimate vocation that God entrusted to Abraham was that through him and his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham was God's chosen man for the sake of God's purposes, not just for the human race, but ultimately for the whole creation, but certainly for the human race. And so Israel would fulfill its sonship, it would fulfill its election and its calling by being God's light shining out into the world. And specifically, as you've heard me say before, Israel's 
the way in which Israel would do this ministration of mediating, bringing the blessing of God to the families of the earth was simply by faithfully discharging their sonship. In the biblical sense, a son is of the father. A son shares in the essence of the father, resembles the father, and in that way manifests the father in word, in deed, in countenance, in orientation. And that's at the heart of even Jesus' own declaration concerning himself. When you see me, you see the father. So Israel, by being faithful to its identity and calling as son of God, would cause the nations around them to come to know this God of Israel in truth. Because when they would see the son, this people who were collectively son of God, when they would see Israel fulfilling its sonship, they would come to see the God of Israel. And so they would testify to the world of who this God is by their faithfulness to God according to his covenant as sons of God. But also as a corollary of that, secondarily, they would testify to the world of what a truly human life looks like. Because if human beings are created in the divine image and likeness to be image children, and if the fall caused human beings to lose sight of that, to in effect vandalize and mar that image so that the human beings no longer knew what it really was to live a human life. In Israel, they were to see that. They would come to know the God of humankind and they would come to know what it is to truly live a human life. They would come to know the creator father and they would come to know the image son. That was Israel's calling on behalf of the world. And so if the Psalms are songs of sonship, then you would expect them to not simply focus on Israel's intimacy with God, but also Israel's intimacy or brotherhood at the horizontal level. First and foremost amongst themselves as the covenant household, but ultimately on behalf of the world. Ultimately on behalf of the world. So I wanted to consider today, as I thought about uh, a psalm to use, and, and this theme of brotherhood or the communion amongst the people of Israel is a theme that at least indirectly is woven into lots of the psalms. But there's one in particular that is, is overt in that regard, and that's Psalm 133. And that's one that I'd like to consider today. So if you want to turn to that, I'll read it with you. Very brief psalm. David says, behold, note carefully how good, how delightful, how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down on the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down on the, to the, the collar of his robe is the idea. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. Life forever. A few general observations about this, and then we'll look at it a little more uh, closely in certain particulars. But you can see right off the bat, this is a very brief psalm. It consists of only three verses. 
There are two other psalms that also have three verses, and there is one psalm, Psalm 117, that uh, surpasses this one in its brevity by having only two verses. But this is one of the shortest psalms in the scripture, one of the shortest passages. And among other things, what that shows us is that it makes its point in a very concise and concentrated way. It doesn't elaborate at length and, and, and develop itself out over an extended uh, series of verses. It's very concentrated. It's very focused, very powerful in the way it communicates its message. We know it also that it's one of the songs of ascent. If you look at the ascription in it, a song of ascents of David. The songs of ascent, there's 15 of them from 120 to 134. The songs of ascent. Four of them are ascribed to David. This is one of them. The songs of ascent, the idea of ascent is an upward movement. And there are different understandings in in different Jewish and, and scholarly traditions as to where this ascription came from. What is the significance of the idea of a song of ascent? Well, there are three kind of general views, and I think all of them play into uh, what is actually historically true, and I hope you'll keep them in your head as we move through this today. But uh, a very common view is that these were particular psalms that were pilgrim psalms. They were psalms that the Israelite people would sing as they were making their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem three times a year. Recall again that the law of Moses required Israelites who were able to journey to Jerusalem, the place where God had put his name, the the site of the sanctuary, three times a year at Passover, then at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, 50 days later, and then in the fall at the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jerusalem was a high point, so it was always going up to Jerusalem. So the ascent to Jerusalem, these were songs of ascent. Songs that were sung as part of that pilgrimage of going up to Jerusalem So the people of Israel would come together in unity in the place of God's habitation to meet with him and worship him. A second understanding of this is that these psalms, particularly the fact that there are 15 of them, uh, some Jewish traditions associate them with 15 steps in the temple that the Levitical singers would ascend as part of their preparation Uh, to lead Israel's worship in song. They would ascend 15 steps, hence 15 songs of ascent. Tied again to the corporate worship of Israel at God's dwelling place. And then the third significance that is ascribed to this idea of the songs of ascent, and I think is also very important, is this idea of return from exile. The songs of ascent are psalms that, at least in part, speak to this longing to again see Yahweh return to his dwelling place. 
restore his habitation. Again, gather his people together from all the nations, from their dispersion. Bring his people back together to meet with him and be with him in the place of his habitation. We've talked about this in so many ways, you know, over the years as, as central to the prophetic message. The prophets promised that exile would not be the last word. God had departed because of covenant unfaithfulness. He had sent away his people. He had made desolate David's house and throne and kingdom. But he promised renewal. He promised that this would not be the end. He promised the restoration of his kingdom. Hence, as Jesus comes into the world, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. This renewal that God had been promising and that Israel was longing for. So all three of those ideas have this idea of an ascent, a movement, upward movement towards Yahweh, where the people of God are converging in a way to be unified in worship, in devotion. And you see that idea woven into these various psalms of ascent in different ways. This particular one uh, very pointedly emphasizes this idea of the goodness, the pleasantness, the delightfulness of the unity of the people themselves in that context. So those are a couple of general observations. Uh, A couple more is that with this idea of Psalms of Ascent, it's not just a historical significance or a circumstantial significance, but I think you find when you read these that they themselves are constructed in a way that is ascending. From where they start to where they end, there's an ascent in the movement of the Psalms themselves. And that ascent can be movement in a theme, movement in an argument, certainly movement in a sentiment. If you read these Psalms of Ascent, they all end on a high point of hope or zeal or joy or faith, assurance, confidence, tied to, again, Yahweh will be faithful. Yahweh has shown himself faithful. The goodness, the faithfulness, the veracity of Israel's God. So even within the structure of the Psalms themselves, there's an upward movement. And in this particular psalm, I think that you can see a movement in the, in the contrast or the comparison between the opening assertion that David makes and the affirmation by which he ends. His opening assertion concerns the goodness and the delight that attend brotherly unity. Behold, hine in Hebrew, look carefully, observe, see the goodness See the delightfulness associated with brothers dwelling together in harmony. And then he closes in a climactic way, and and I'll unfold this a little bit, but his closing statement suggests that the virtue and the value that he found in this unity the virtue and the value of it derive from its relationship to God himself. And again, if you think about the way these Psalms of Ascent have been associated with 
Israel's historical circumstance or practice. They all have Yahweh at the center, going up to Jerusalem, the end of exile, the worship of God in the Levitical singers ascending the steps. It's, it, the ascent is to the, the coming together around the centrality of God himself, the God of Israel. And so David's closing points in that direction. This is a unity that has its goodness, its virtue, its pleasantness in, relate, in its relation to Yahweh, the one who reigns from Mount Zion and who from that place has decreed or commanded his blessing to go out, the blessing that is perpetual life, abiding life. So that's some general thoughts about Psalm 133. I want to now pull this out in term, or, or flesh it out a little bit in terms of, of kind of these three subsets. The first is, again, David's opening assertion. Look at that a little bit more uh, closely. And then what he affirms at the end. And then look at these two metaphors or um, descriptive images that he uses to make his point in the center of the psalm. He has an opening assertion, the goodness, the, ble- the blessedness, the pleasantness of this unity. He ends on this high point of, of Yahweh's blessing of life going out from Zion. And then he has these two metaphors that he uses in the, mi- in the middle to, in a sense, substantiate and flesh out his claim. So the first thing then to, to say about this is that David is referring to unity among brothers. This is explicit in the text. This isn't some kind of open, abstract ecumenism or, or you know, human unity in, in some sort of social, cultural, national sense. This is unity among brothers, Unity among brothers. And he's referring to the household of Israel. The household of Israel. A unity among Israelites. In other words, it's a covenantal unity. It's a unity as the covenant people of God. And that's going to be important. It has Yahweh at its center. It's the people of Yahweh who are coming together around him, in relation to him, in connection somehow with him. So this isn't societal union, you know, unity. This isn't political unity. This isn't uh, philanthropic or philosophical unity. This is the unity that was to exist among the sons of Israel as the people of God. And then again, he closes with this affirmation of God's commandment of abiding life out of Zion. And so this brotherly unity that David is extolling has Israel's God and king. The point of Mount Zion is that was the place of God's throne. That was where God dwelled. That was where he ruled from. Hence, his commandment goes out from Mount Zion. From there, he has commanded his blessing, abiding life. So David associated this unity with the life that God has decreed and that he dispenses from his throne on Mount Zion. 
Now, there are two ways that that statement can be understood. One is that the forever idea goes with the commandment. The other is that the forever idea goes with the life. As I read it in the NAS, it's treated as the latter. From there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. So you have two possibilities then that David could be getting at. He could be saying Yahweh has commanded forever this blessing that is life or Yahweh has commanded the blessing that is life forever. In perpetuity is the idea. And while probably the second is correct, sometimes you can have in in Hebrew the putting of an idea at the very end for emphasis and so the forever could be tied even to the idea of the commandment itself. But both are consistent with what the scriptures teach and even what you see in the Psalms. Yahweh has decreed life as the unchanging destiny for his creation, but that decree is also sure and steadfast. It stands forever. He has decreed forever life that is perpetual. Both are true. Both are true. So David is connecting this unity among brothers somehow to the decree of life and, the, and, and this purpose of God, the commandment of life going out as a perpetual statute, as, as the destiny he's appointed for his creation. And now the, the way you kind of sort that out is with these two metaphors that he has in the middle, these two uh, analogies by which he, he uh, fleshes this out a little bit. And there are two of them. He says, it is like the precious oil upon the head. The oil that comes down upon Aaron's beard, down to the collar of his robe. And it is like the dew of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Zion. Coming down on the mountains of Zion. So I want to deal then with those two metaphors and, and, and hopefully flesh out the significance of that. You know, when I look at this, I think, okay, what made those things come to mind? When David is talking about the blessedness of this unity, that he's tying to God's reign on Zion and the commandment of life that God has put out, why does his mind turn to these two things to say, here's how you can understand it. The oil on Aaron's beard and the dew of Hermon. Two very different ideas. Well, he's alluding here as it pertains to this anointing oil to the ordination of Aaron. You can read about that in Exodus where God is giving instructions to Moses uh, concerning everything related to the administration of the covenant how the tabernacle is to be built, its furnishings, the priesthood, the order of the priesthood, and the rite of ordination for Aaron and his sons as the priests. And that rite of ordination involves anointing, anointing with oil. So the concern here, what David is pointing to, was that ordaining of Aaron to stand as priest between Yahweh and Israel. That's what he's talking about. The appointment of Aaron. But why does his mind go there? Why does he turn to that? And here's where I think it's really important that we, we, we see how important, I hope, that we have to stay 
in the historical and Israelite context. Because what I found, and I looked at lots of commentaries and lots of writings this week on this psalm, and the tendency is to treat this connection, these metaphors, and, and their, their contribution in abstract. In other words, just in terms of general ideas. And so they say, okay, what David is saying here, why, when he says how it's good and pleasant for brothers to dwell in unity, it's like the oil coming down off of Aaron's head. They say that connotes these ideas of pleasantness and preciousness, abundance, you know, this oil sufficient to run down his face into his beard, get into, onto the collar of his robe. Even the idea of consecration. And so uh, commentators tend to go down the path of, okay, there's these qualities of holiness and preciousness or, or abundant joy and delight associated with, with uh, Christian fellowship. And I'm not saying that that's altogether unwarranted, but those are connotations that are drawn out in abstraction. They're not tied to why specifically Aaron and why the ordination event of Aaron. Why is David thinking about that? Is it just these general concepts of pleasantness or abundance or whatever? But if that thing with Aaron is taken, is not viewed in its historical context as it pertained to Israel's life with God and how this brotherhood actually was formed and sustained, I think that we minimize what really David is getting at here. That's all I'm saying. So what's the point? Well, again, David is extolling covenant unity that derived from Israel's mutual sonship. It was that very sonship that Aaron and his sons were ordained to administer. Remember, we saw even in Hebrews that the covenant was founded on the priesthood. The law, the covenant was founded on the priesthood. The brotherhood amongst Israelites was shared sonship. They were sons of Yahweh. They were gathered together as his people, as worshipers, as brothers and sisters, sons of the Father. And that relationship that God had established and ordained in Abraham was actually upheld and administered. The goodness, the value of it, the perpetuity of it was tied to Aaron's ordination, the priestly ministration with a view ultimately to the fact that God's people entirely would be priests and kings to our God, right? Israel was itself a priestly nation. So there's more here than just simply the ideas of pleasantness or abundance or holiness or whatever in abstraction. Aaron was the covenant mediator, and that highlights, David is highlighting the unique and privileged nature of Israel's brotherly unity, brotherly communion. They were brethren because God had taken them to himself to be sons and daughters. And it wasn't genealogy that bound them together. It wasn't common descent, although largely the people of Israel were descended from Abraham. But there were Gentile proselytes as well. The household of Israel wasn't defined as brothers and sisters strictly by genealogy, 
but by God's own purposes and election, forming a unified family. Brotherhood, in other words, grounded in sonship. They were brethren, not because Abraham was their shared father per se, but because they were together sons of the living God. His second illustration, or not illustration, but simile by which he says, this is what it's like, or here's how we should think about it. He said, it is as the dew of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Zion. Different metaphor, but connected even with this idea, and you see it more clearly in Hebrew, this idea of coming down, the oil that comes down off of Aaron's head onto his beard, comes down onto the collar of his robe. Here it's the dew that comes down onto Hermon and comes down onto the mountains of Zion. In other words, both, in both cases, these things that are a blessing, a blessing or have a, a goodness to them have their source in God himself and his purposes ultimately for the blessing of his people. Well, once again, why that imagery? What made David think of the dew of Hermon? What is he getting at? Well, David was thinking from an Israelite perspective and with the understanding of his own role, his own election, his own calling to be God's king for the sake of bringing the families of Israel together. He would be the one through whom God executed his rule from Jerusalem over the whole household of Israel. And I won't take the time to read it today, but if you go to 2 Samuel 5 and 6, you see that. From the time of Joshua forward, Israel was never able to conquer Jerusalem. It was a Jebusite stronghold. Even though they conquered the land, they were never able to conquer Jerusalem. David is the one who conquered Jerusalem and took it from the Jebusites to be the city of David. And David, we don't know how he arrived at this conclusion, but David ended up in his own mind concluding that Jerusalem was to be the site of the central sanctuary that God had even told all uh, Israel all the way back to the time of Moses. God said, when you come into the land and take the land, I will appoint a place where I will put my name. And that's where you're to build me a sanctuary. That's where you're to come and meet with me. That's where you're to come and worship me. Think again about the issue of the Psalms of Ascent dealing with the pilgrim feasts, right? Coming up to Jerusalem, coming to encounter and worship God where he's found. David was the one who established, not only took Jerusalem from the Jebusites and made it an Israelite possession, but made Jerusalem the city of the great God. It was David's intent to build a permanent dwelling for God on Mount Zion. And if you recall that story, Nathan said, do what's all in your heart, the prophet Nathan. But then he said, no. God said, no, David's not the man. His, man. his son Solomon will be the man. But it was David's vision, it was David's work, it was David's triumph and labors as king that actually secured Yahweh's dwelling on Mount Zion. And the other thing is that after David conquered Jerusalem, 
all the families of Israel. Israel had been divided. And all the families of Israel, the 12 tribes, rallied together under David's kingship, willingly, eagerly. And he ruled from Hebron for about seven years, and then he ruled in Jerusalem over all the families of Israel for 30-some years. David is the one who brought together the families of Israel. He's the one in whom that Israelite unity was accomplished in connection with installing Yahweh on Mount Zion. Remember, David brought up the ark and installed the ark in the tent on, on Mount Zion, acting as a priest. All of these things, 2 Samuel 5 and 6, and then the Davidic covenant in chapter 7. So this is the lens through which David is looking at what he's doing. And there are scholars who believe, and perhaps rightly so, that David penned this psalm with a view to God's triumph through him. In other words, this psalm is a kind of celebration of the fact that God has used David to bring together the families of Israel. Oh, how blessed, how, how glorious, how good, how pleasant is the brothers dwelling together in unity. And David was the instrument of that work. Well, what about, what does that have to do then with this specific imagery? Well, how does this direct David to this idea of Hermon? Well, if you, if you know Mount Hermon, it's actually kind of a, a collection of mountain peaks. But it, it is at today, I think, in Syria. But the very northern reaches of what was the kingdom promised to Abraham. When Joshua took the land, this became the possession, that region became the possession of Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh. So this represents the northern extremity, northeastern extremity of Israel, God's covenant land. And that series of peaks, at least the highest, is over 9,000 feet. It has snow on it most of the year, Mount Hermon. And the idea here is, is even the recognition on David's part that the moisture that sits on Hermon, even in, in the times when there's not snow on its peaks, there's a dew that would form in, overnight. And in the morning when the sun would rise, it would cause an evaporation. And that warm, moist air would move south. And it would again deposit that moisture in the form of dew on the mountains of Zion the Judean hills that have Mount Zion in Jerusalem as one of those peaks. So he's dealing with kind of something that was a weather pattern even in Israel, but it has a significance in the sense that this dew, this moisture that flows from the north all the way to the south and drops itself on Mount Zion and on the mountains of Judah is a kind of unifying principle. The God whose pronouncement of life goes out from Mount Zion, there's a similitude in that, in the fact that from the northernmost all the way to the south in Jerusalem, the waters of life flow according to the purpose of God. This movement of moisture in the form of dew unites the land of Israel, unites the people together in that sense, united in the life that Yahweh has bestowed on them. And this is very much at the heart of the covenant, this principle of life. Moses said, 
In Deuteronomy 30, he said, Behold, God has set before you life and death. Choose life. Exile was death. Judgment was death. Life was continuing in fellowship with God in the connection of Israel's bounds. So I think that image draws on that idea that even that, that God has bound together his covenant habitation through this natural principle of life, life-giving water imparted through the movement of the moisture from north to south. And it, in David's mind reminds him of the way God has pulled together, this, pulled together his people according to this principle of life. So those two metaphors reinforce, I believe, his opening assertion concerning the goodness and the blessedness of this fellowship, this unity, by pointing to the basis and the nature of it. What unity is he talking about? It is a covenantal dwelling together. It is dwelling together in connection with Yahweh's own purpose and goodness and accomplishment. God established that unity for Israel by giving covenant life to the nation. I've given you life. Continue in life. Abide in life. It was their shared covenant life that was the basis of this unity. A unity of mutual sonship that belonged to them alone as Yahweh's covenant children. That's what David is talking about. And it is very likely that he penned this song in celebration of the fact that God had used him to accomplish that unity that was first promised to Abraham. I will be God to your seed after you, your people, and they will be my people. I will be their God. I will bring them together in connection with myself. They will be my sons. I will be their father. David was the one through whom God accomplished that, even establishing his own throne on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He had been the instrument in that sense for even God accomplishing what Aaron's anointing represented. Aaron's anointing represented God's intent to be the God of this people and to mediate that relationship through this anointed priesthood. And through David, God had accomplished that outcome of taking a people for himself, unified around a shared covenantal status. And yet, and yet, if you look at the preceding psalm, Psalm 132, and we don't know the order in which these were written, but the compilers or compiler put them together in a certain order, as we've seen, for a reason. This isn't just a haphazard collection. And Psalm 132 was clearly written after 133. 133 is ascribed to David. Psalm 132 is an exile psalm. It's a psalm written in the context of the exile, the desolation of the things that David is celebrating. The desolation of God's covenant kingdom. Read it with me. Psalm 132. Remember, O Yahweh, on David's behalf. 
all his affliction, how he swore to Yahweh and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not enter my house or lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for Yahweh, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. That's remembering again David's desire to install Yahweh on Mount Zion to build the dwelling place for him there. To establish the temple, the the permanent habitation, the permanent sanctuary on Mount Zion. The psalmist says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I teach them, their sons also will sit on your throne forever. There's echoes of the Davidic covenant. Remember, Father, what you pledged to David. Remember. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. Her godly ones I will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown will shine. Now, again, there are different opinions about when this is written, but I think this context of the exile is probably, again, the most appropriate. Because the exile was the time when everything God had promised to David had gone away. And the people's longing was that God would remember his mercies to David, even the reading of of Isaiah 55. That God would arise, he would restore David's house and throne and kingdom. And he was going to do this through this son of David appointed in the covenant. All of these ideas are woven into this, but the compilers of the Psalms put this Psalm ahead of Psalm 133. So that in a very real way, this longing for God to arise and put right what has all gone wrong is the backdrop for David's celebration. In other words, the unity, the goodness, the blessedness that David, in a sense, achieved was fleeting and fickle. It didn't endure. It didn't endure. What David is celebrating was very short-lived. That unity did not continue. Dispersion, exile, diaspora is what came about. The, The destruction of Yahweh's dwelling place, desolation. Read Lamentations after the fall of Jerusalem. How lonely sits the city that was once full of life, silent, dead, O Lord, how long? When will you arise? That was the the plea of the prophets. When? How long? Daniel, how long? How long? When will you arise? 
So Psalm 132 really sets the tone for David's song. It underscores that what David achieved and celebrated was non-ultimate transient. It was fickle and fleeting. It fell short of God's decree of life. What Yahweh had purposed through David awaited David's royal son, the one who would unite Yahweh's children in accordance with the unending life that God had decreed from Mount Zion. What's the point? We are those ones, we upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're the heirs of that work and that unity. Israel's unfulfilled covenant life with its fleeting and its fickle unity has become now union with God through participation in the life of the one who embodied the covenant. The one who is the true David, the one in whom Israel became son of God indeed, the one who in himself is forming a new covenant household, what Paul calls the Israel of God. At the end of Galatians, he says, circumcision means nothing, uncircumcision means nothing. What matters is a new creation. And to all who will walk according to that rule, that principle, mercy and peace be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. He is the one that Psalm 132 is crying out for and celebrating. The calling that the Lord has sworn to David of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. He is the one in whom all of David's labors, joys, and hopes expressed in this psalm that we've been looking at have become yes and amen. So this brotherly unity that the psalm celebrates and that we enjoy, still our unity is covenantal and it is Abrahamic. We are the children of Abraham. It's a brotherhood of Abrahamic children. It is a covenantal brotherhood, but in a profound and a living way. All who belong to the seed of Abraham are sons of Abraham, right? Galatians 3. All who share in his life are sons indeed. He is no longer a Jew who is one outwardly, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly with the circumcision done by the Spirit of God. Brotherly unity remains covenantal. It remains Abrahamic, but in a living way. It is the realization of the life that David says God decreed from Zion. The basis of Israel's unity was the promise of life but unrealized life in their experience, now realized in the living one. One life in the spirit, one life by sharing in the Messiah's life, sons in the son to become a royal priesthood, presenting true spiritual offerings as Yahweh's everlasting sanctuary. All of these themes converge in the Messiah, and in a sense, this is how Paul can say that God's purpose towards which he's working all things is ultimately to reconcile and gather together and harmonize all things in the Messiah. With this human community of brotherhood at the very center of it. We are that. What David saw and rejoiced in and celebrated was 
non-ultimate, and it went away very quickly. But the promise was one day God would do that in truth. He would form a people for himself that he would actually take up in his own life. The life he decreed from Zion would become theirs in the son of David. And all that was destroyed would be regathered and renewed in him. So my point is this, how much more then is the unity that we have good and pleasant? Ought it to be good and pleasant? If what David brought about and enjoyed was to him good and pleasant, how much more ought it to be for us? How much more ought it to be pursued and treasured? And just as a closing comment, as I look at the church, and I don't want to overstate this because overstatement always obviously goes too far. But as we look at the wider church in our day, I see that unity in the church for the most part, this sort of unity isn't really treasured. It really isn't seen in its goodness and it's not pursued. And I think the reason is, is that it's really not rightly understood. What is the unity that characterizes most Christian communities? It's religious. It's denominational. It's confessional. It's philosophical. In many cases, it's cultural. It's social. It's all kinds of things under the sun. Very rarely do we see Christian communities that are actually bound together by the unity that David saw, in a sense, at a distance that is actually good and pleasant. The unity that centers in Yahweh himself and his accomplishment in the Messiah. The unity that centers in the God who sends out the decree of life. The unity that is shared life in the Messiah. That's the unity that Paul told the Ephesians to fight for and pursue and uphold. One faith, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father. And we don't see much of that. We see all kinds of natural unity, even religious unity. And it's no wonder that it's not a precious thing, that it's not a valued thing, that it's not a priority in our lives. The unity that we generally see may have a form of godliness, but it lacks the substance and certainly the power of the unity that the psalmist, that David is celebrating, and that has come in the Messiah. And so it's really no wonder that the church has little impact on the world. Because in many ways, the church is largely another expression of the world and its unity. We rally around social justice. We rally around racial equity. We rally around religious whatever it happens to be, all these different things. Is it any wonder 
that the church has so little impact on the world. And I close again with Jesus' high priestly prayer where he prayed, Father, cause them to truly be one as you and I are one. As you and I, Father, are one. I in you, you in me. Let them be one in that way. As they are in me, they are in us, they are members of one another. Then the world will understand that you sent me. Then the world will understand that you sent me. And to the extent that that goodness and pleasantness and blessedness of brethren dwelling together, to the extent that that understanding of it isn't present in our testimony, we have no gospel. And the world cannot understand the meaning of Christ's coming. It's that significant. And that should convict us all. To the extent that we are not manifesting and owning what it is that David looked to and that has come in in Jesus himself, we have no gospel. However much we tell people how to get saved or whatever it may happen to be, it's not the good news of the kingdom. Father, I know these are things that we talk about a lot. I know there are things that at some level most of us understand. But I confess with myself, and I, I would imagine it's true with most all of us, if not all of us, that in our day-to-day practice, this reality that Jesus cried out for in the upper room The ultimate end of his death coming the next day was that he would form in himself a people who are one as he and the Father were one and continue to be one. Father, it escapes our lives. We're busy with many things. We're busy with our issues, our priorities, our needs, our desires, our interests. And it manifests itself in the church's impact on the world. The world does not see a new creational human organism. It sees another group of religious people of various persuasions, denominations, traditions, thousands and thousands of denominations, Millions of churches filled with independent people seeking their own ends, their own goals, looking to the day when they as individuals can go off to heaven. Father, it ought not be so. I pray that you would continue to form this in our hearts and minds, that we would have the same zeal, the same delight, the same enthusiasm that David had when he looked at the sons of Israel gathered together in shared heart and mind and worship around the God enthroned on Mount Zion. All that he hoped for is yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. I pray that it would be true in us, not just individually, but as a people, and not just as a congregation, but more broadly. Give us a grand and a truer vision and give us the capacity to pursue it and to want it and to live it out. 
All of these things, Father, we ask of you with the hope, with the confidence, with the joy that are ours in Christ. Amen.